Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. The bill is controversial, even though everyone agrees it does lots of nice things that Labor promised before the election. It's controversial because of those things that they've added, which employer groups claim is going to result in, in more strikes when I actually think the objection to it is that it might do what it says on the tin and help people get bigger pay rises. Hello, you're listening to Australian Politics. I'm Paul Karp, political reporter at The Guardian. I'm filling in for political editor Catherine Murphy while she's away covering the G20 summit in Bali. I'm here today to analyse the data from the Essential Poll, conducted every fortnight for The Guardian. I'm speaking with Peter Lewis, who's the executive editor of Essential Media. We talked about Labor's Industrial Relations Bill to be debated in Parliament's final fortnight and the high level of public support for many of its measures. We also discussed the Robo-Debt Royal Commission, the prospects for the National Anti-Corruption Commission and Twitter. Like a moth to a bonfire, we couldn't resist its glow. This conversation was recorded on Tuesday and was moderated by Ebony Bennett, the Deputy Director of the Australia Institute. Here is Ebony now about to ask me the first question. Um, Paul, uh, if I can just come to you first, just to kind of set us up for where we are in the last fortnight in politics and, you know, the the couple of weeks ahead. The Prime Minister's obviously off at the G20, but um, there seems to be a fair bit, fair bit happening in his absence. Yeah, so the government um, has specified a number of election promises and bills that it wants to get done um, this year. And some of that might be helped with by the opposition um, passing legislation, such as the National Anti-Corruption Commission. Uh, but some of it's going to come uh, down to down to the wire and still negotiating to get that one last Senate vote that they need when they have the Greens on side, but the coalition opposed. So on the Industrial Relations Bill, um, they're, they're still trying to get David Pocock uh, over the line to support that. And I think that will be a, a big focus in the last uh, fortnight of Parliament. But, you know, the, the work of um, restoring Australia's international uh, relationships is, is ongoing with the Prime Minister's trip uh, to the G20, uh, you know, and what will be the first meeting um, between uh, the Australian Prime Minister and Xi Jinping, leader of China, in six years. So that will be, you know, an important moment for the Labor government to signal that that relationship is on the mend. 
Yeah, because that's um, been in the deep freeze for a long time now. So I can already hear a bit of expectation management that the meeting in itself is a win, which I think is true. But obviously the government's still aiming to get things like those trade sanctions dropped against Australia. Um, How much is this, I guess, a promising sign that things are beginning to thaw there? There has been a thawing because uh, previously, there, there had been, um, you know, China's uh, fourteen grievances against uh, Australia, and um, you know there were there was talk of you know preconditions like why would we meet and, and until we know that there's a good outcome that's going to be achieved, you know, Australia has to do something before we'll meet with them. China has dropped any requirement for preconditions before meeting, so the, the fact of the meeting going ahead without either side having to concede anything is, is actually itself an improvement. And it follows, you know, Penny Wong um, and Richard Miles uh, meeting their, their counterparts earlier in the year. So there's been sort of slow and steady progress. Um, And I did just want to touch on, uh, before we dive into the results with Pete, uh, because I think we'll kind of touch on this today through some of the questions, is the government's kind of IR laws that they're trying to get through. Um, I wonder if you could just walk us through the kind of objectives of that legislation and where some of those sticking points are. Yeah, so the bill does lots of things. Um, At its base, it it implements a lot of election commitments, to, for example, uh, make gender pay equity an objective of, of the Fair Work Act, to ban pay secrecy clauses. So a lot of the things that they said they would do before the election. But of course, one of their election promises was to hold a jobs and skills summit. And at that jobs and skills summit, uh, they they added to that wish list of things that they wanted to do. They said that in order to get wages moving again, they were going to try uh, and encourage multi-employer uh, pay deals, which are currently only allowed under very limited circumstances. So they're going to expand multi-employer bargaining options. And they also uh, want to strengthen the right to request flexible work uh, into being able to a- appeal to the Fair Work Commission if an employer unreasonably refuses a flexible work request, which could be working from home or four days a week or or, or changing your roster pattern. So the bill is controversial, even though everyone agrees it does lots of nice things that Labor promised before the election. It's controversial because of those things that they've added, which employer groups claim is going to result in, in more strikes when I actually think the objection to it is that it might do what it says on the tin and help people get bigger pay rises. Yeah, and uh, and we might come back to that lockout at the moment. I was just really interested that the first kind of big industrial thing that's happened is a lockout from an employer rather than anything else. But I guess the bill hasn't passed yet. But uh, we'll come back to that. Pete, I did want to come to you and we might start going through uh, some of the results here. Direction of Australia, are we going in the right direction? direction or on the wrong track this week? <laughs> well, this is a good little anchor point for how government is is traveling. Um, as you can see, um, the story of 22 is that for the majority um, of respondents, Australia changed direction quite markedly um, around May. There was a certain event that occurred in May, um, change of government, and the sense not so much, you know, there's a bit of a jump in the right direction, but the sense that things are on the wrong track had dropped. You can see that rising up a little bit over the last couple of months. So it's gone from being in the 20s to the mid-30s. Cost of living is a real pressure on any incumbent government. Um, These numbers say that the new government is 
to a degree resilient, but in no way immune from from those bread and butter pressures. And as um, Paul was suggesting, you know, the, the IR laws is partly a response to that, along with many other things. Yeah. But if you think we're on shaky ground, we also, given that it is summit season, we thought that we would um, ask people where they thought other major parties were or ma- major powers were in terms of heading in the right and the wrong direction. So we've got down the bottom of the table, um, most of us believe that um, Russia under a warmongering despot is heading in a, the wrong direction. Um, most people see China under um, a surveillance statesman heading in the wrong direction. America, I wonder if those numbers have been different if the red wave had actually broken. But again, people see America as a bin fire and Britain as a bit of a mess as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I I put a piece up in The Guardian just looking at the context of, you know, the G20 summit where in that room there is the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia who kills dissidents, there's Putin's designate, there's a new Italian prime minister that does more than nod at the um, legacy of Mussolini. Democracy is a um, diminishing faction on the world stage and while I think elections in Australia this year, and let's also say the midterms in America and also the recent Brazilian elections means that you wouldn't say democracy is dead. There are real tensions and they they swirl around a bunch of different issues, including the pandemic, including global cost of living, um, including the war, including climate change and including the way that technology is dividing us. So yeah. it's just interesting. Like we're looking at the world at the moment um, and we're saying it doesn't look like a place I want to be in. Yeah. Um, Speaking of climate change, COP27. Yeah. So one of, one, of, one of the, you know, so it's not just G20, there's the COP in Egypt. People are, it's interesting, these numbers. There is a degree amongst Australians that there may be, some positive outcomes. So do you think the outcomes of COP27 can make meaningful difference on climate change? Again, people listening to the pod, essentialreport.com.au to look at these numbers. 17%, yes, they definitely can. 33%, they probably can. 36% are negative. But go to the next slide, Eb, and just have a look at these age differences in responses. So if you're 18 to 34, you're positive about these talks, 68 to 20. If you're in the over 55 bracket, it's almost a flip, 52, 34 negative. Now, what's going on there? One is young people are optimistic because they know something needs to happen. I think there's also something driving the um, these responses, which is just Australia's happy that our government's now in the room making a positive contribution rather than a negative one. The younger respondents might be answering with a, a longer time frame in mind. <laughs> more time to to turn turn the ship around absolutely uh well we might go on to the next slide and look i, I we were talking before um about how it's really important when you ask questions about contentious reform to make sure you're not begging an answer um particularly a company like essential that works on the progressive side of politics we're always very careful we're not trying to get progressive outcomes from our polling questions because that doesn't do any good to anyone So in terms of two propositions, which is really the debate going on at the moment around these IR laws, the first, the legislation is the key to getting wages moving and gives power back to employees. 50% agree with that. 
Um, on the other, the contra argument, this legislation gives too much influence to unions and will be bad for the economy and business, 27%. So almost half with 23% unsure. You wouldn't say that debate is done and dusted, but what you would say is that in terms of delivering on an election mandate, Labor um, has a strong argument. But then if you unpeel that the next layer down, um, what you see here is strong support for the key provisions. These are all um, elements of the, the package that Labor is trying to get through the parliament at the moment. Strength, strengthen the power of lower paid workers to negotiate pay rises, 72% support, 7% opposition. Strengthening workplace laws to close the gender pay gap, 70% support, 10% opposition. Giving employees more power to have flexible work conditions, Again, that's 66% support, just 13% opposition, and giving workers the ability to join together across different workplaces to collectively negotiate pay rises, i.e. the industry-wide bargaining, 62% support, 14% opposition. So the other thing, we haven't got a table here on this, but if people go into essentialreport.com.au, they can look at the, the party breakdowns. On each of those propositions, a majority of coalition voters say they support a majority of independent um, supporters vote as well. So I think there is obviously we're at the point where vested interests are trying to pare back um, anything they can in that negotiation phrase. But the big picture to me is that Labor went to an election with a promise to get wages moving. This package is broken down into a series of elements that have broad public support. And the argument that there, there, there is a reason to block them, I think, is, 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 hard, is hard to justify. One more thought before we move forward, which sort of rounds out my um, column, but it's also a shout-out I want to make on this webinar and also this podcast, that if we think about attacks on democracy, the real one of the really critical elements driving that is economic inequality, um, populism thrives off people being disengaged from the economy. If you look at one of the key areas where of driving inequality, it has actually been the attacks on workplace democracy and unions over the last 40 years. So in a way, these laws are not just about what's in front of you, which is the specific industrial provisions. It is also about putting a worker's voice back into the way the economy operates. So I think the, the, the legislation is actually more important than, than may meet the eye. Yeah, Paul, um, Pete makes some interesting points there. Uh, certainly some of the more draconian legislation that's passed the Australian Parliament in recent decades has been really aimed at smashing the unions. But just I thought it was really interesting there to see when you lay out the kind of different objectives of the bill, there's very strong support uh, but there's been a lot of pushback, obviously, from business and employers. How strong is that, do you think, and how confident is the government feeling that they've actually, you know, they've got the people with them on this? Well, I think the the bill, it's, I mean, it, it uses a lot of technical jargon uh, to explain um, how the different streams of pay deals with multiple employers is going to work. And so 
Um, that can be very uh, off-putting to people. It doesn't surprise me that a good, you know, quarter of people are unsure what they think of the bill in in that in that first result. Um, and so there is some, uh, you know, fertile ground there for a fear campaign or a you know mining tax uh, style campaign against this bill if it does carry on, you know, the debate into into next year. But um, th- that said, I mean the the support is almost two to one in favour of each of those measures, and I think part of that might be that people might be responding with a sort of tribal. Uh, uh, concern to giving too much influence to unions in in the first question, but when you actually pose um, each of the individual measures to people, some people that might not be union members might like the sound of things like you know having more control over which days in a week they work or the things that are designed to get higher pay rises. So it doesn't surprise me that there's support for a lot of the measures. I think that there's a lot of potential for fear campaigns if the debate drags on um, much longer. So I, I think um, the, the Labor's pitch to David Pocock is going to be, if if we're going to do this, we, we should do this now. And, um, you know, it's better to overreach in favour of um, helping working people than, than in the other direction. Can I just also say I... I have not seen anything in my research in at least the last decade that says to me that union power is a genuine concern for people. I've seen the New South Wales opposite, uh, government up here trying to run a big scare campaign that the unions will be controlling the country again because the rail, tram and bus unions currently trying to you know, make the railways safe. But the rhetoric, it's almost like muscle memory that the unions are going to take over the show. I think the median voter um, might not be persuaded by that because they have so little experience of, of unions that that's not a, a, a positive or very, very scary thing. They don't feel strongly about it in either direction. But if you look at how the coalition voters responded um, to the first question about the bill overall, as opposed to each individual measure, I think that there are some people that have a partisan affiliation to the coalition that would that that do respond to that. The base would respond to that. What have we got next? Here? Oh, look, we thought we'd ask a few Twitter questions, but this is the anchor. Like for those that are part of the Twitterverse, it is um, all-consuming for most people. It ain't. Um, 62% of respondents never been on Twitter. The one I find interesting, how could you go once a month or less? Like 7%. <laughs> so you're going in there once a month and going, oh. Um, anyway, um, there is still, you know, a diehard core and probably a lot of people here who have been um, very exercised by Elon Musk's takeover. I must say quitting Twitter because the ownership change is about the most Twitter thing anyone on Twitter could ever do. Like it's <laughs> peak Twitter. But um, it is um, interesting. So we asked some general questions. Um, should politicians use Twitter? 4341 say it is inappropriate. Um, politicians should use Twitter to engage with people, but also focused on other ways to engage. 41, um, 12, 16% see it as a vital channel for people to hear about news. They'd be the people that are on Twitter. What was interesting is those people that are off Twitter don't think politicians should be on Twitter either. So um, you know, I, I've done a lot of thinking on the way that digital spaces can either um, support or undermine civil discourse and democracy. Um, I think of all the platforms pre-Musk, Twitter was doing the most interesting in terms of coming up with models to sort of take a bit of the anger out of their, their ecosystem. There was this really interesting program that developed where 
they were building friction into the system by giving you a nudge if you just retweeted something without reading it, saying, hey, do you think you should read that first? Just some things like that, which also caught a lot of bots. Last question here. Twitter is an open forum for everyone to say anything they want. 52% of people agree. Um, just 21% see it as a reliable information source. Um, and only 20% reckon they're doing um, what needs to be done to protect users from hate speech, lies and misinformations. Two final outtakes of those Twitter questions. One is that Twitter's influence is, it, it is easy to feel it's exaggerated because the people that tend to be on it are people that are part of the public debate, but there are a lot of people that just don't go anywhere near it. And that what is happening to the platform by taking away any of the infrastructure of stability is probably going to make it even less relevant than it's been in the past. Yeah, Paul, what's been your take of how that's all unfolded uh, with Elon Musk's takeover? Um, well, he's completely torched the, the point of what verification is supposed to be. Verification is supposed to tell you that that person is who they say they are or does, you know, work at that organisation. And, and that's gone now. And you get the tick if you pay $8.00. Uh, but you have in order to differentiate who is someone who was previously verified versus someone who's just paid for it, you've got to click through and sort of read a little blurb about about why they have the tick. So it's just created this a space for parody and impersonation, and that's not okay when it's directed at Elon Musk, but when it's directed at Disney and you know uh, companies trading on the share market and other celebrities, that's that's still that's still going on it's it's all really bizarre and i fear like the the way that he's going to try and get people onto that is um to deprioritize uh the the tweets of anyone who won't who won't pay uh that fee uh, and as a result it's like putting the spam at the top of your inbox instead of uh, over there in that separate inbox that you don't need to look at it's like putting putting the spam at the top, it's, it just sort of beggars belief. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm sticking with the platform for now just because I can't figure out how to sign up for Mastodon. Mastodon. <laughs> invitation to tell me. There's plenty of explainers out there, but it is it, that's too much effort for me. That's too much of a high bar. Um, Paul, uh, just coming back um, to climate briefly, I know we're kind of headed into another La Nina summer. Um, there's flood warnings across a whole range of parts of Australia. Again, um, you know, a lot of communities still in recovery. And it, I guess it just strikes me that as we head into another summer of ex um, extreme weather, we've had a lot of focus on inflation and the treasurer talked about the fact that all these natural disasters are expected to increase inflation and put up the price of vegetables that have been flooded out and all that kind of stuff. Um, how much do you think this is going to be an issue over the summer, both in terms of inflation, but also just the massive cleanup costs and number of communities that might be affected for kind of a third summer running? Well, that's that's something else that they have to do between now and the end of the year is they promised an intervention in the electricity market. And so they're, they're looking at a mandatory code of conduct that will involve, um, you know, price caps on, on gas and coal that should flow through to um, retail electricity prices. So that's a big deal. I mean, uh, to have the Secretary of the Treasury uh, recommending that in Senate estimates 
Brits the other day for that to be uh, an uncontroversial uh, idea at this point um, because, you know, gas companies are just making so much money due to um, the invasion of Ukraine. Like it, it really is quite an interesting moment um, that the price rises are so bad and the case is so strong for that intervention. Um, in terms of the increasing uh, cost, uh, I think um, we're going to see uh, more calls for measures like um, I th- the New South Wales government um, and the federal government, uh, and I, I think Victoria as well, were involved in in a buyback scheme where they're encouraging uh, people to to sell you know, houses that have been in extremely at-risk areas or, or flooded repeatedly over over a long period of time. And I think that's the sort of thing that we're going to have to be uh, tipping more into because it's just too expensive to keep cleaning up. Uh, we have we have to think about a, a longer-term solution um, and being more sensible about, about where people live because even if we achieve, you know, limiting climate change to two degrees, like we're going to be seeing a lot more floods and we just have to be prepared for that. Mm. Um, Paul, I've got a couple of different questions, so we might stick with IR for a bit because I think people have been following your reporting specifically. I've got a question here from Bev who asks, um, why do you keep referring to the IR legislation as controversial when the polling shows us that people have a lot of support for it and asks about the big business lobby groups um, trying to manufacture this kind of controversy, which I think you've alluded to with kind of prior big campaigns. Her question is, are these lobby groups now in the minority and is it really still considered controversial in the broader public sphere? Um, well, Australia has had a system of enterprise bargaining for like the last 30 years. Uh, and I think a lot of the criticisms of uh, the bill are overstated. I don't think it destroys that system at all. And in many respects, it encourages employers to take that option up because if your workers are on the award and you don't want to get sucked into a multi-employer pay deal, there's one surefire way to do that under the bill, which is to to do an enterprise agreement, so to, to make a pay deal with your own workforce. But that said, there are some pretty huge changes in it. So um, giving the Fair Work Commission the power to arbitrate intractable disputes uh, is a big change. Um, having more options for multi-employer bargaining um, is a big change. Uh, this is probably, um, you know, more radical than, say, the Fair Work Act, which in many respects just, you know, got rid of work choices and returned to, like, the 1996 legislation in many respects. So it's 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 a big change. Uh, it has lots of powerful opponents. Um, you know, Australian Resource and Energy Association has, uh, has said that they're going to run a mining tax-style campaign against it. Um, there's opposition. Do we know much about uh, who they are? Like I've heard of the Minerals uh, Council. Are they like a new? No, so so they're the renamed AMA. It used to be the Australian Mines and Metals oh, Association. Yeah. I'm with and you. AMA, yeah. AMA uh, is, yeah, one of the harder uh, 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 opponents of sort of collectivism and unionism. Um, uh, so, but they've expanded their membership slightly um, and got a new name. But so the, the reason I call it controversial is, you know, there are big changes. There are powerful opponents arrayed against it. The numbers in parliament are very tight. You know, the the, the coalition has come out hard against it. Even Jackie Lambie has criticised it as as going too far, especially with abolishing the ABCC. So, I mean, controversial doesn't mean 
that I think uh, it's not w- worthwhile. I, I, I just think it's a big deal. Um, so a couple of other questions, and then we might move on to a couple of different issues. But Ian Warfield asked about um, the Spitzer lockout at the moment and commenting that Patrick's was as dominant as Spitzer is now um, and wanting to know what this legislation, if it was already in place, might um, do with that kind of um, a workplace issue. And then someone else asking about how much or how strongly the right to strike is protected with existing legislation and will this new IR legislation address? Yeah, so on Spitzer, um, this should happen less often because the the new bill uh, has the power for the Fair Work Commission to arbitrate intractable disputes. So this dispute has been going on for three years and they've now taken this extreme step of um, locking out their workforce indefinitely uh, from Friday because they're, they're sick of industrial action. And I think that's actually designed to meet the test under the current Fair Work Act, which is that there has to be you know, significant harm to the Australian economy. And then the Workplace Relations Minister can ask the Fair Work Commission to step in terminate all the industrial action and the lockout and just just you know just decide the answer to uh, rather than allowing negotiations to conclude with a deal like the fair work commission will just arbitrate the outcome so hopefully you know if the bill passes you'd be able to go to the fair work commission without having this escalation and taking this extreme step and that's the point that tony burke uh, the workplace relations minister has been making today um in terms of the right to strike it's it's very poorly protected in Australian law. You can only take protected action um, when you're bargaining for a new pay deal. And even then, there are a lot of procedural hurdles uh, about um, having to ballot uh, to get approval for certain measures, having to give notice for, to, before you take that, that action, ways that employers can thwart it by arguing that you're not bargaining in good faith. So it's extremely uh, constrained at the moment. Um, this bill, it, I mean, it doesn't, it, it leaves a lot of those procedural hurdles in place. And it, it also requires, um, it also requires that you take conciliation before um, going to industrial action. And because more disputes will be, you know, terminated by the, the Fair Work Commission or, or arbitrated by the Fair Work Commission, it might mean fewer strikes. So it doesn't, restore the right to strike um, in Australian law. It's more about giving different options uh, for what level of pay deal uh, to strike, basically. One of the things Tony Burke was really strong on before the election was that a lot of the creep of employer power had been through the fine print of legislation, that um, the downward pressure on wages is about employers across industries undercutting each other or restructuring companies, um, not engaging in good faith bargaining. So it wasn't as if there was, it was a bit like um, rather than it being a sledgehammer of work choices, it had been lots of little bangs. And what these laws are looking to do is sort of tighten up the system in a whole lot of different places with the presumption, and I think it bears out in our, in our polling, that it is better to have a counterforce to employer power than not to. Now, how that is how that operates, um, how that is constituted, how unions adapt both their um, processes but also their, their their tactics and strategies to deal with that new environment um, is obviously really relevant. But to 
to effectively, in terms of a social safety net around work rights, tighten up the holes. I think that's the bit that people are missing in this. So, um, and Paul, more than most journalists, has worked really hard to get deep into the detail and the detail is really important. But superficial guy like me, just in terms of the trees as well, you've got to look at the big picture, which is the recalibration is actually creating some ballast so that there are entry points for organised labour because the absence of organised labour has led not just to jobs that are less secure, less well-paying, but an economy that's less secure and and, and less well-paying. Mm. The next couple of questions I've got are around uh, the robo-debt inquiry, which is currently underway. Paul Smith has asked, um, will this inquiry have any impact, for example, reputation damage on the politicians who were in charge of it, for example, Scott Morrison and Tudge? Um, Paul, some truly appalling evidence coming out from that inquiry seems like a crucial one to have. But, yeah, how much of it is um, is tarnishing the reputations of the pollies at the top versus the public servants who are implementing it? Uh, well, we haven't had a smoking gun yet of, you know, a, a brief that was sent to Morrison that highlighted prominently, you know, that the, the scheme was I- illegal. I mean, that would be great. But I think it... It does reflect poorly uh, on the on on the ministers that you know there was this culture in the public service to 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 tell them what they wanted to hear, like something was already in the budget. You know they were already looking, you know, at the savings they wanted to achieve, and then the small the small detail that it actually required legislative change to be legal just sort of fell through the cracks. I mean that's a pretty terrible system, and um, but. I think the the public service, it, it, the, the politicians are more to blame for eroding the impartiality of the public service to the point that people um, just understand that they have to progress the, this this measure, even though you know it's questionable and may not be legal. That's that's more the problem that we've seen so far. We haven't seen um, you know some some willful and deliberate thing from the minister pushing on, knowing that it's illegal. But it's I mean it's it's bad enough what it's already uncovered. I think. Yeah, definitely. Some of that um, some of that reporting. I'm not sure if you've been following it, Pete, but yeah, the kind of indifference um, towards what was happening. Uh, and of course, you know, we've just seen this, the devastation that it had for so many people. How much do you think that's playing out um, in the public arena? Well, look, the human stories of people who were beaten into the dust by algorithms and their masters who didn't listen is a tragedy. The other consequence of robo-debt, of course, was that we have all lost faith in government's use of technology to deliver government services. And I always put forward a mind experiment that goes something like this. Imagine if instead of finding ways of going after poor people to accuse them of overpaying them and kicking them off government support, the first use of algorithms and this so-called smart technology had been to go and find people who weren't getting benefits or payments that would due, entitled to. 
how different the way we would be looking at this technology would be. So there are all these ways in which matching up data and understanding um, where citizens' needs are can create really good policy outcomes, but instead they use as a way of cutting costs and it's totally destroyed faith in government deploying these technologies. So the other part that I hope will come out of this Royal Commission is what is best practice for government to use you know, artificial intelligence or whatever you want to call it to to drive better policy outcomes and critically to make sure that people get what they're entitled to. So I think it was A, a tragedy, B, an absolute wasted opportunity that will probably cost government a lot more than the the damages that will be claimed against them in the wash-up. Yeah, there's nothing inherently wrong with, um, you know, matching what people tell the government with with another data set over here that the ATO has. All the assumptions that were made, you know, averaging their income over periods of time to come to conclusions that were uh, unfavourable to the welfare recipient, like, you know, illogical conclusions that that must have been your income in that period and therefore you must owe a debt of this amount. And then, and then leveraging that to make a threat against them that unless you pay up or provide more documents, which will then give us the actual basis for for alleging there's a debt, it, it's 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 all those effectively those things. reducing the onus of proof as well, though. Yeah, there's the the the, the mere the mere use of of the data uh, to 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 spot inconsistencies. Um, it, there was nothing wrong with that. It's 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 the assumptions that were made and the the, the threats in the letters and and asking for money when the, the legal case wasn't there. And even petty things like not including a phone number where people could call and just forcing people to interact on you know online. Um, yeah, nudge, nudge for evil instead of nudge for good. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Speaking of evil, uh, people are wondering about the passage of the National Anti-Corruption Commission and uh, are keen for the panel's thoughts on the government um, cooperating, in quotes, with the Coalition on the Integrity Commission. Um, Paul, what's the latest on that? Uh, so there was a, a, a joint parliamentary inquiry that recommended some quite minor changes to the bill, but otherwise reached a consensus report. Uh, crossbenchers, including Helen Haynes and the Greens, uh, such as David Shoebridge, are going to move amendments, particularly to lower the threshold for public hearings to get rid of this exceptional circumstances test, uh, which is a very high bar to have a public hearing and, and people fear might have been put in by the Labor government to appease the coalition. But I think what we're going to see is we're going to see those amendments put up in the Senate, uh, voted down by Labor and the coalition. And then I think the bill in basically its its current form, just with those few small tweaks that the committee agreed on, I think it is going to sail through where, you know, there's going to be all, almost almost no one voting against it, no no division called. I, I'm not sure we're even going to see the, see the numbers or, or, or uh, voting against it at all. I think it could go through unanimously. Mm. Pete, what are the optics of uh, doing that kind of a a deal with the coalition on this? I I feel like we're in this period of um, a new way of doing politics where everyone's collaborative again and we can agree on some things and disagree on the others without, you know, suspecting people's motives. But, you know, the coalition for a lot of people, they look at the sports rorts and all of that kind of thing as the example of where things were going wrong and 
processes were corrupted, if not um, corrupt in actual fact, we're not saying that, but what's the optics um, in your opinion of this, uh, a, a stitch up with the coalition on, on more controversial provisions like the public hearing stuff? Is it a good look or will it go over well with the public who's looking for cooperation nowadays? Uh, I I don't think the optics are as important as the long-term integrity of the um of, of the new body. And if Dreyfus can find a way of getting the support of both the coalition and the independents and the Greens, it will lock in a long-term body. I think the risk of having it contested is it becomes a political football, which will also undermine its outputs. So if you think about optics, if the coalition says this is overreach and votes against it, it will diminish any inquiry into a coalition politician because it will be seen as a political body, whereas if they can land multi-partisan support for this body, so I, um, it, it will be a stronger body. I, I, I think that is... Um, in a way, self-evident. Um, obviously, there are points at which it is not worth making those changes to have a, a meaningful body, but I think that's the matrix the, the government's looking at it through at the moment. I think the the real trust mark still is Helen Haynes, um, who was the champion of this in the last parliament. Listening to her comments, she basically says, this is a good piece of legislation. I will keep working to have more amendments put through, but I don't want to people to think that this is a bad piece of legislation I'm trying to rescue. This is basically good and I'm trying to make it better. Mm. I, I think I think having it uh, multi-partisan is the best way to ensure its long-term future, um, but I think that uh, having the extremely high threshold for public hearings sets up a, a lot of... Um, a lot of fear and mistrust when it actually begins its work, but we don't actually see a public hearing, you know, for, for it, it, it will be operating for years without a public hearing. And we'll, we'll get a situation like in Victoria where reporters will report in dribs and drabs that there is an, op- an investigation open and so-and-so has has been interviewed. Um, and it's going to breed sort of fear and mistrust where, you know, people are angry at the reporters saying, oh, you should wait until the report's finalised and people are, you know, wondering why are the reporters reporting, um, you know, inquiries into the Daniel Andrews government. And uh, basically by not being able to see the evidence arrayed against people and hear their answers in public hearings, I, I think it, it, it makes for uh, greater distrust. And the IBAC commissioner in Victoria lobbied against the exceptional circumstances test at the federal level and said that they would have preferred for those uh, big matters that are currently being reported in Victoria to have been public hearings so everyone could see it. Yeah, because the secrecy, as you said, breeds distrust. Um, You know, there's that old saying for a reason, justice can't just be done, it has to be seen to be done. And yeah, I think there's, there is a real problem there for how people perceive this. If, as you say, it's going to be years before we see anything or, you know, a report pops up down the end and no one's got any context for it. Um, you know, I don't see how that's any different to a secret Phil Gaitchen's report into the internal, you know, um, internals of, um, of the public service or any of these other things that people have been railing against because they were secret. And look at look at the standards that they set for for others when they when they set up royal commissions. 
Like, do, do we accept that royal commissions, you know, destroy people's um, reputations so we can't have royal commissions into robo-debt, pink bats, trade unions, institutional uh, child sexual abuse? I mean, those were all people in the dock, you know, for, for, for months and months and hearing all the evidence and making a judgment as it was going about, you know, who had questions to answer and who was who was answering them and who wasn't. Yeah. That's still probably got, you think that'll pass in the next two of the next fortnight of sitting, Paul? Yeah, yes, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've got a couple of other questions here around the midterm um, results in the United States. Widely expected um, Paul to be a red tsunami, if not uh, a landslide, but that didn't really come to pass. How significant is that? Well, it's huge uh, that the Democrats are going to control the Senate, uh, even without uh, the the Georgia runoff. Um, They're up to 50 seats now uh, with Nevada and Arkansas. And because they've got the vice president with the casting vote, they control the Senate again. And that means that, you know, any sort of uh, impeach Biden crazy uh, procedural things uh, should be thwarted in in the back half of his term. And that's uh, that's certainly a relief. Um, the House, uh, it looks like the Democrats have done a lot better than expected, but uh, uh, are going to very narrowly lose control of the House to the Republicans. Um, some of that is, uh, you know, Republicans doing better than expected in, in New York and people also saying that Democrats should have more aggressively done re- redistricting, changed boundaries, um, which is a bit gross that that's a feature of the US system, but that that has apparently given the Republicans a, a, a partisan edge. Um, so, you know, it's it's very interesting that you, you, you can't just judge on fundamentals like approval rating of the president and inflation and just, just throw that into a big computer because sometimes... Yeah. Um, we don't it, have an algorithm for crazy. Well, you... <laughs> But you don't you don't have an algorithm for um, you know a huge event like the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v Wade and and you know, just junking um, the right to choose motivating you know young people and women particularly um, and you don't have uh, very many analogies for this like cast of crazy MAGA candidates who who lost well, eminently winnable seats. Well, particularly, and this is probably the other part beyond the Senate and the House, it was the down ticket races where it was the governors and the local state who would be responsible for certifying the next presidential election. And there were a lot of Trump-endorsed election deniers standing for election certification office at this election and largely they've fallen over. I just saw another one's gone, um, a governor. So that's Carrie Lake in Arizona. Yeah. yeah. So that, if you think about in terms of American democracy as it as it still exists, um, that's probably the really positive outcome from this. You know, of course, the red wave not, not breaking is good for America, but even better is those, those contests, which could have had a long, long um, shelf life. That's it for today. Thank you all for listening to our recording of our live show, Pole Position, hosted by the Australia Institute. You can take a look at the slides discussed during the session by going to essentialreport.com.au. We will have another episode of Australian Politics later this week where Guardian Australia's politics team will be here to answer your questions. If you'd like to ask us a question, please send us an email at australia.com 
www.podcasts at theguardian.com by 10am Thursday. This episode was produced by Daniel Simo. The executive producer is Molly Glassie. I'm Paul Karp. See you next time. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm at the nail salon. I'm at the grocery store. I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Groceries through Instacart delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store.